Welcome to the First Take Podcast. I'm Simon King, Executive Editor at First Word Pharma Plus. On this week's episode, I speak to my colleague, Virginia Lee, about Biogen and ISI's renegotiated agreement for Aduhelm. I discuss the implications of a negative data readout for Sanofi's much-anticipated novel breast cancer therapy and catch up with First Word Health Tech's Tina Tan to understand how oncologists are using digital technologies to combat pandemic-related waiting lists and provide mental health support for cancer patients. Those paying close attention to the biopharma market over the past 12 months will know that where the Alzheimer's disease drug Aduhelm goes, controversy is never far behind. Next month, the US Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will announce its final decision on whether to provide coverage for the drug, having announced draft guidance in January, proposing it will only pay for Aduhelm for patients enrolled in clinical studies. Against this backdrop, partners Biogen and ISI announced this week that they've renegotiated their agreement around Aduhel. ISI will no longer share profits and losses with Biogen, but will instead receive sales royalties, the company said. Under the revised collaboration, ISI will receive tiered royalties starting at a rate of 2%, rising to 8% if annual sales exceed $1 billion. Virginia, I've seen it stated that despite the huge uncertainty around Aduhel, this is a good outcome for both sides. Is that really true, particularly in the case of Biogen? And what does the renegotiated agreement mean? So I'll start with the first part of that question, whether this is really a good outcome for both sides. And I think this can only be good news for Azi given the circumstances. They are essentially writing off Aduhelm, which only posted $1 million in fourth quarter sales last year. And it has a rather dismal commercial outlook going forward. And they're refocusing their attention on their next Alzheimer's hope, Lucanumab. It's a bit harder to see how it's a positive for Biogen. They're left holding the bag with Aduhelm. And in the meantime, they've begun to lay off employees as part of a broader plan to lower their annual expenses in the wake of lower than expected sales for that drug. But I suppose one positive spin on this is that it's a sign that there's clearly still some optimism around their next in line beta amyloid MAB uh, with lecanemab. So despite all the controversies surrounding Aduhelm, they're still putting a lot of resources into that. And if the lecanemab data come out clearly positive, this might allow Biogen to deprioritize Aduhelm down the line and having full control over Aduhelm rights would make that easier. And under the renegotiated agreement, the financial terms around the lecanemab part of the partnership are unchanged. So Azi and Biogen will continue to share profits and losses 50-50 and Azi will lead commercialization of that drug and they've expended their supply agreement for it. So Biogen will manufacture lecanemab for 10 rather than five years. So what's the next shoe to drop with lecanemab in terms of data? Um, So as I started a rolling submission for lecanemab last year, and they're seeking accelerated approval based on a phase two biomarker study, and the data we've seen so far suggests lecanemab may have better target engagement relative to Aduhelm. But the next major shoe to drop is data coming out next half from the phase three Clarity AD study that is assessing lecanemab's impact on cognitive decline, and that's what everyone's watching for. And I suspect the FDA is unlikely to make a decision on lecanemab before those phase three data are made available.
There is a competitive race to bring a new class of breast cancer drugs to market. And against that backdrop, Sanofi reported some disappointing data this week. Simon, what's the latest here? So this is Sanofi's drug, Amsinestran, which is an investigational oral SIRD inhibitor being developed for ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. Now, SIRD inhibitors are not new per se. Uh, The injectable drug for Vestran was approved 20 years ago, but developing drugs in this class that can be administered orally is a novel approach. Sanofi is not alone, and this is a classic scenario where a handful of big pharma companies have developed products in near unison leading to multiple pivotal stage data readouts, um, which are set to occur over the course of 2022. The bad news for Sanofi is that in a closely watched study evaluating amsinestron as a second and third line therapy, the drug has failed to meet its primary endpoint of progression-free survival, the company said earlier this week, and that casts some doubt on the outcome of other ongoing studies which are investigating it as a first line agent and as adjuvant therapy. Up next is Roche, which is due to report data for its oral surge in mid-2022, followed by AstraZeneca, which is scheduled to announce results for its own drug in the second half of the year. So does Sanofi's setback this week come as a surprise? Well, the readout of these data was delayed on multiple occasions over the past 12 months, which I guess is something of a red flag. And based on the very limited data which has been made public to date, Some analysts have also questioned whether Sanofi's drug might have a slightly weaker efficacy profile. Now, the flip side is that these same comparisons indicate that amsinestran may actually also be a cleaner agent in terms of potential toxicities. And Sanofi's actually highlighted this in the past as a potentially important characteristic with regard to future combination use. Taking these factors into consideration, however, it perhaps opens the door to speculation that the drug could have potentially been tested at higher doses in this study with better outcomes. The other thing we need to mention is that although most focus around oral SIRDs has been on big pharma, two smaller players working in collaboration, Radius Health and Menorini, have actually beaten them to the punch. They released positive phase three data for their own oral SIRDs in December and hope to file it with the FDA in the second quarter. Now, those data were deemed to show somewhat modest improvements in progression-free survival, but perhaps need to be viewed in a more favourable light now. And there's something else that's worth mentioning. Radius and Menorini designed their study to measure progression-free survival in all patients enrolled, but also those patients identified as having a mutation in the ESR1 gene. And that's known to be a common resistance mechanism to aromatase inhibitors. Now, Sanofi had previously played down the relevance of this approach, and of the other companies in late-stage development, only Roche is looking at ESR1 mutations, but as a secondary rather than primary endpoint. The other notable design feature is that all the patients in the Radius and Menorini study had previously received treatment with the CDK4-6 inhibitor. Now, this is a relatively new class of drug which has reshaped the, the treatment paradigm for breast cancer relatively quickly. And in the Sanofi study, 80% of patients had received one of these therapies. By comparison, the Roche and AstraZeneca studies do not mandate prior CDK4-6 use, which could theoretically have a positive impact on the PFS benefit their drugs show. But on the other hand, it could limit commercial use if oncologists think that the study designs are not reflective of the real-world treatment landscape. 
So the RADIUS and Menorini drug leads the way here. What did their data show? Yeah, so their drug, Elisestron, reduced the risk of disease progression or death by 30% in the overall trial population, where it extended median progression-free survival to 2.8 months versus 1.9 months for standard of care, and by 45% in patients with that ESR1 mutation, where it pushed the median PFS out to 3.8 months. Now, we haven't seen data yet for non-ESR1 mutation patients, and the FDA, once it receives a marketing application, presumably with those additional data, will have to decide whether the drug should be approved in all patients or just those with that particular mutation. But regardless, in light of Sanofi's setback, I think this biomarker strategy now looks like a wise move. And what's the bigger picture here for Sanofi? So Sanofi's in the midst of a strategic overhaul. It's got a relatively new CEO, and it wants to demonstrate that its R&D credentials are improving, that its pipeline is delivering. And that's both in terms of internal capability and expertise and the extensive deal-making it's made over the last 18 months or so. And I think in that respect, this is a significant blow. And that's why the company's share price was down 5% when the news hit on Monday. We heard earlier today that Sanofi has signed a collaboration with Seagen to work on antibody drug conjugates, and that's a hot field for drug development at the moment. But Seagen has also found itself under some investor pressure recently. So this is perhaps a well-timed move by both parties to showcase some more potential R&D momentum. We have with us today Tina Tan, who's the executive editor at First Word Pharma's sister site, First Word Health Tech. Tina, I know you've been surveying physicians frequently since the turn of the year about various ways in which they interact with health technologies. And there were a few that I wanted to discuss with you specifically today. One thing we've read a lot about over the past two years is how the COVID-19 pandemic has stretched waiting times for cancer patients. You ran a short survey last month to gauge how oncologists are utilizing digital technologies to help overcome this. What were the key takeaways? Hi, Simon. Yeah, so it's it's well recognized, you know, the disruption COVID has caused when it comes to putting on whole non-emergency procedures. So whether that's diagnostic procedures or patients getting the treatment they need. And within oncology in the UK alone, um, hospitals have a massive long backlog to work through. And a report by um, the NHS England revealed that the time between a cancer patient being diagnosed and them getting treatment has significantly stretched. So the poll we did indeed confirmed there was a problem with treatment delay times. And this isn't just in oncology practices in the UK, because we did the poll, you know, uh, we fielded the poll to oncologists in other European countries as well, and in the US. So the problem is there too. And uh, the average waiting time that we found between diagnosis and treatment is 4.5 weeks, four and a half weeks. That's um, what our respondents uh, said. So just to put it into context, in England, the maximum wait should be two weeks. So um, as you can see, that that's quite a, a significant delay. So how can technology help to reduce these waiting times? We hear about AI helping with faster diagnosis and like clinical decision making. And we wanted to know if oncologists actually believe technology could help and in which areas. 
So the key finding uh, from our poll is that diagnostic AI is considered by our respondents as being helpful. It does help to cut back, uh, cut through that backlog. Uh, but technology that enables virtual care or remote care, so we're talking about telehealth platforms, you know, um, that's what they find to be the most useful tool. So then being able to see patients anytime, anywhere without the inconvenience of travel is a big help. So those are the key findings from our poll here. And so moving focus, but staying in the oncology field, you also surveyed oncologists earlier this month about how they're using digital solutions to help cancer patients deal with their mental health well-being. What was the response and was there anything that really surprised you? Sure. So we launched this poll because we are seeing a number of behavioral therapy focused uh, digital therapeutics being developed for specific patient populations. So, you know, not just for uh, mental health conditions. Um, Better Therapeutics is one company, you know, that has initiated a trial for its uh, digital therapeutic for treating cancer related to stress. So what I had expected to see from our poll was recognition among oncologists that the mental health of their patients um, did play a role in how they responded to treatment. And that was what we found. Um, no one, you know, among our respondents said cancer-related distress had no impact at all on treatment outcomes. The majority said it either had a significant or extremely significant impact, you know, on uh, how well uh, cancer patients um, did in um, treatment. So I think what I found surprising was how traditional counseling remained the top strategy for oncologists to address their patients' mental health. So this could be face-to-face -face as well as like telecounseling. Um, what surprised me, because there's just myriad mental health apps now readily available, you know, that's easily downloadable and accessible to patients. And um, I would have thought that um, oncologists would recommend these to, to their cancer patients. But it seems that, you know, clinicians being clinicians, they do prefer scientifically validated solutions, which I guess, you know, is good news for companies like Better Therapeutics because uh, prescription digital therapeutics are clinically assessed and regulated like a medical product. So the opportunity is definitely there for prescription digital therapeutics to make an impact in cancer care.